This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It is my honor to introduce to you this evening Yanis Varoufakis. Varoufakis was the embattled finance minister to Greece for the Syriza government during the country's 2015 fiscal crisis. Varoufakis has been called, quote, one of my few heroes by his friend, the philosopher Slavoj Žižek. Varoufakis resigned after successfully campaigning for a no vote in the Greek debt referendum in 2015, emulating Zizek's other idol, Melville's Bartleby, by preferring not to participate in the Troika's deal. Most recently, Varoufakis authored Adults in the Room about his time as finance minister, so titled as a subversive reversal of a snide remark made by IMF Secretary Christine Lagarde. Today, Varoufakis joins us to discuss his book as well as the translation of his 2013 book, Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, or How Capitalism Works and How It Fails. Please join me in welcoming him to Politics and Prose. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to at last make it to Politics and Prose. I was meant to be here in November. We didn't man manage it, but now I'm here. And you're here, and I'm, I'm chuffed. Thank you. Uh, okay. Let's, um, I'm supposed, I was asked to, 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 to make uh, some introductory remarks, but what I'm really looking forward to is the Q&A, the discussion. So I will, it's not easy for me, I'm going to contain myself, hopefully. Uh, two books, quite different, I mean very different. Uh, from, from a personal perspective, I have to tell you that Adults in the Room was, um, uh, a tragedy to write, a personal disaster. Uh, you have to ask my wife. I was um, uh, just uh, in the clasps of permanent torture while writing every word. I hate that book. I loathe it with every sign of my body and mind, but it had to be written, I believe. Uh, primarily because I lived through the experience of 2015 again uh, without the adrenaline that I had in 2015 and without the hope. So when you are relieving an experience, a difficult experience, without the hope that you had the first time around, uh, I, I can assure you it's, um, it's awful. And then when, when that finished, I finished writing it in, in English, then I had to go through it again, writing it in Greek. And of course, one never translates one's own work. One rewrites one's own work. So one relieves the horror. The other book, this little one here, is the nicest thing I've ever done, the, 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 the most enjoyable thing I've ever written. Uh, it happened in the summer of 2013. I had a contractual obligation with a publisher, and I had to write to produce a book for that particular publisher. So to make my life easy, I said, well, why don't I just write a book without any plan? I'm going to write about the economy, addressing it to my daughter, because it helps organize my thinking. Because my, my, my daughter, like those of you who have daughters and kids in particular, know that they are, they are our worst critics. So I knew that uh, anything I said to her was going to come back to me with, Dad, this is embarrassing. Uh, so it is, it is completely jargon-free. Every sentence has, has been written with the joy and the horror, the joy of writing it simply, and the horror of her reaction to it. Uh, and it's about the economy, and in the end, of course, about democracy, because the, the, the main point of, about this book, which is also reflected in my experiences in the other book, is that economics is about power. It is about the power that you and I have or do not have, more likely, to control our lives, our communities, our municipalities, our cities, our countries, the planet we live on. Uh, and democracy is all, all about distributing, distributing power in a civilized way and in a manner in which it allows the majority a degree of control over their lives. The moment we allow economists to tell us that they are the experts on matters economic, democracy is dead in the water. Because we live in a society that has evolved over the last 200 years to be a realm of economic relations. Whether we like it or not. I wish that were not the case, but it is the case. So if, you say, if, if, if this gentleman over here uh, were to 
be respected as the economics expert. In the same way that if you want to build a house or you want to build a bridge, you have to go to an engineer. If you try to build it democratically, you're a fool and it's going to come crashing down. Uh, so you, we do have experts when it comes to the natural sciences, engineering, and we must respect the rules of engineering and we have to appeal to the experts to carry out the work that we want to be done. But if we believe that there is such a thing as an economic expert, I'm choosing you, <laughs> then we must also defer to this gentleman all the important discussions, uh, discussions, questions concerning social security, the budget deficit, who gets what, who gives what, industrial policy, macroeconomic policy, interest rate policy. If he is the expert, he's got to decide on your behalf. But all these decisions are the ones that determine your life and the life of the future generations. So if this guy is the expert, or if there is an expert, and we're not experts, the rest of us, then what's the point of democracy? Let him make all the decisions. In the same way you would allow an engineer or a space engineer uh, to build the rocket or to build a bridge. Now, thankfully, there is no such thing as an economics expert. Economists are fantastic at understanding, teaching, articulating economic theories. But what is quite fascinating is that the more sophisticated an economic theory is, the less related it is to really existing capitalism. So the only way you can produce an economic model that works and can be solved as a system of equations, mathematically, is if it is absolutely irrelevant to your lives. But economists understand only one economic concept very well, one economic reality, monopoly, the power of monopoly. If you are monopolizing communications, if you are monopolizing the oil market, then you have huge power over the rest of society. Ask Zuckerberg and you know, Facebook or Standard Oil back in the you know, 100 years ago. So what they realize is that if they manage to take that which everybody understands and express it in a language that no one can penetrate, then they have monopoly over the economic truth. And therefore, uh, they can do anything they want with you. Now, of course, let's not exaggerate. Economists have no power, per se. Economists have never written any budget, articulated or formulated any economic policy ever in the history of humankind. Uh, but they do play a very important role. Usually it's something like, do you know the joke when there is this old um, rich person who is dying and he has three sons and um, he wants to decide at his deathbed uh, whom he's going to leave his fortune to. One son is a mathematician, the other is a computer scientist, and the third is uh, an accountant. So he brings them around, each one at a time. He asks the mathematician, son, one plus one? And the mathematician says immediately, two. Thank you. Next one, the computer scientist. One plus one? Computer scientist, 1.999999. Okay, thank you. Third one, the accountant. One plus one? What would you like it to be, Dad? <laughs> That's, that's the economics profession. Economists have traditionally created economic models that justify the economic policies that the powerful in our society have decided independently of economists. But that doesn't mean that economists are not significant. Because by formulating these models, they may not be the ones who pull the trigger, but they are, they are, they are the ones who, tell the, who preach the sermon the steadies, that steadies the hand of those who pull the trigger. So when uh, Wall Street came tumbling down in 2008, it was not economists that decided the bailouts. It was not economists that, using the infinite wisdom provided to them by the economics discipline, they decided that Hank Paulson should give 700 billion to the bankers of Wall Street, and then Larry Summers and Tim Geithner should follow up with another nine trillion uh, camouflage under that fantastic Summers-Geithner plan that none of you noticed, even though it gave trillions more to the bankrupt bankers. 
No, that was economic and social power. The powerful, as Larry Summers put it to me, and it is in adults in the room, the insiders decided that. But then they needed an economic theory in order to justify it. Like in the Middle Ages, the king decided to slaughter a particular community, and then the bishop came in and justified it on the basis of theological grounds as to why it was important that these um, infidels should have been slaughtered. And until and unless each one of you understands that no economist understands capitalism, and that there are no economic experts, and that democracy has no chance to survive or to breathe until and unless you are active citizens, which means that you will have to understand the economy, not economics. The less you understand economics, the better the chances that you have to understand the economy. Because I, I, I meant what I said before. Economics models are built in order to be aesthetically pleasing, mathematically sophisticated, but the only way that they can be solved is if they have nothing to say about the economy in which you live. And let me be a bit more specific about this. What do I mean by that? If you're going to have a, a model of American capitalism, hmm, you need to have many equations, many variables, it will have to explain the inflation rate, the rate of unemployment, investment rates, interest rates, the quantity of money in the economy, uh, employment, different kinds of employment, good quality employment, Uberized employment. All these are variables that have to be in that mathematical model. So imagine you have a system of many equations huh, with, with, with many unknowns. And these unknowns are all these variables that I mentioned. My proposition, my theorem, and I, I can actually prove it mathematically because I spent quite a few decades as a mathematician. We can prove that the only way to solve this system of mathematical equations and close the model and make the model work is if we assume that there is no such thing as time or space. <laughs> no, seriously. If you introduce time in the model, the model collapses. Has any of you suffered economics 101? You remember the demand curve, huh? which says that when the price comes down, quantity demanded increases? That curve can only be defined mathematically if ceteris paribus in Latin, if all other things are the same. What? How can all other things be the same? Everything, everything, the oil industry, the, the money market, the, uh, you know, the industry for uh, smartphones, uh, agriculture, nothing must change so that the demand curve for sugar can be defined. And the same thing applies for the demand curve of something else, of cars. Eh? So the moment you introduce change, of course that means time, the whole model collapses. Space the same. You can't have space because if you introduce space, then you introduce degrees of, 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 of monopoly. I won't bo bother you now. Just take it from me. Believe me. All the great theorems of economists require the absence of, the f of four things, actually, not two things. I already told you what the two things that must be missing so that the economist theories work. Time, space, money, and debt. No economic model can handle time, space, money, or debt. You know, there are wonderful universities in this country. And the young men and women who enroll in economics departments and get their masters and their PhDs, and they really struggle because it's hard work. These mathematical models are very difficult. They get an education that tells them how to solve economic theories or to work with economic theories, which disappear in a puff of smoke the moment you introduce debt or money in them. In other words, they are structurally, by design, useless. And yet, these are the models that the financiers in Wall Street use in order to justify why they do with the derivatives, the derivative trades, the various shenanigans which in the end brought down, almost brought down financialized capitalism in 2008. And it's no great wonder that none of those economists, not one of them, predicted what was going on. Each and every one of them was saying that before 2008 that we now live in a new paradigm. Remember Bern Bernanke? The great moderation. 
See what happened to the Great Moderation in 2008? <laughs> Bernanke lost sleep for three years because of the, the, the Great Moderation was the most immoderate moment in human history. So, it is imperative that each and every citizen is activated as an economic theorist. Because if you do not believe that you have a duty to understand how the economy works, you can never be sufficiently energized to be an active political agent. And if you're not, then the oligarchy in which we live, that is disguising itself as a democracy, is going to become increasingly authoritarian and at the same time increasingly incompetent. Because this is the, the world we live in. The adults in the room, those who supposedly know and make all the decisions on our behalf, and insists that they are the ones that who, who should make all the decisions on our behalf, are both incompetent and authoritarian. And the more incompetent they are, the greater the crisis that they end up having to, uh, to manage, and the greater the degree of authoritarianism which they need, they require in order to keep on pretending that it is business as usual. Democracy is a very important word for me, personally. It is a very abused word. The ones who are actually invoking it are the ones that actually loathe it. They are scared of the idea of a demos, a people that are in control of government. Come to think of it, the American Constitution is a fantastic document, but nevertheless, if you look, read more carefully, or oh, I'm sure you have read carefully, the Federalist Papers, the foundation of the American constitutional process, it's clear that it's all about how to keep, keep the riffraff, the majority, uh, away from the levers of power. How to create a system of representation that would create legitimacy, that would give the riffraff the impression that they are in control when they are not in control. It is a mistake to think that the system that we are, have created has anything to do with democracy or that the intention was that it is democratic and that it has since then, in the last 200, 300 years, that it has degenerated. That's not true. It was never meant to be democratic. The foundation of our modern de so-called democracies has always been the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta had nothing to do with human rights or liberty for them for the people. It was a contract safeguarding the rights of the barons, of the lords, vis-a-vis -vis the king. And one of the rights that the Magna Carta established for the barons was the right to have slaves. This is the foundation of our modern democracies. Now, I'm all for empowering the democratic process that we have. This imperfect, oligarchic, so-called democratic process we have. But we must understand that the dissatisfaction we feel with our democratic process is not the result of some failure of the design. It is not the result of some degeneration of a system that was excellent and somehow because of a decline in moral standards, because of a decline in the quality of our politicians has led to, dissatisf to the, dissatisf the dissatisfaction that we're feeling today. It was designed to keep you out of power. Let's go a little bit further and sideways. Have you noticed that the quality of politicians has been declining steadily for, for decades? <laughs> we have, haven't we? Well, it's perfectly normal, isn't it? It's got nothing to do, to do with the DNA of politicians degenerating. It has to do with the fact that President Eisenhower had a great deal more power than President Reagan. President Reagan had a great deal more power than President Obama. The further back we go in history, the more power the presidency, the office of president had in this country, the office of prime minister had in my country, in Britain, the office of president in France, and so on and so forth. There is a natural evolutionary process. Okay, let's go a long way back. Before the 19th century, 
there was one sphere of power, an indivisible sphere of social, political, economic, cultural, and military power. Back in the feudal era, going even further back, the Lord had military power, the army, the sheriff, had economic power because he had military power, he owned effectively everything, and the sheriff would go to the, to, to, to the peasants and at the end of the harvest collect the share of the hegemon. So economic power, political power, cultural power, religious power, because the Lord controlled the bishop. The bishop if the bishop disagreed with the Lord, he lost his, his head. Yeah? He was re simply replaced by another bishop until he kept, uh, uh, until he started giving the sermon that the, that the Lord wanted. So, one sphere of power. Back then, you, we didn't need economics. If you understood military matters, if you understood politics, if you understood religion, which was providing the ideological cover for the political power, you also understood the distribution of income and the distribution of wealth. You did not need a separate sphere of thought, economics, or economic thinking. Indeed, the word economy didn't mean anything back then. It was all one thing. It was about society, it was about power, it was about uh, the uh, distribution of roles in a society. Things changed irreversibly towards the end of the 18th century, beginning with Britain. Everything starts in Britain, all the bad things and some of the good things. with the so-called enclosures. What had happened very, very briefly, uh, I tried to explain this to my daughter here. When I asked her what she thought of the explanation, she said, Dad, by your standards, not bad. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, what had happened was, advances in navigation had created international trade routes that elevated some commodities, very few commodities, to the status of international commodities, like wool from England, silk from India and from Japan, high-quality steel from Japan, spices from uh, the subcontinent, the Indian subcontinent. These were easy to carry in the ships of the time, durable, and in demand globally. So anybody who traded in these commodities suddenly found themselves quite rich. And also, it was as if they had become autonomous vis-a-vis -vis their own societies. Because if you, if you were a sheep farmer, especially if you had a lot of sheep in Scotland or in Wales, uh, your wool suddenly had a price that was, had nothing to do with the king of England, had nothing to do with the local markets. It was determined at the level of international trade. To cut a very long story, very short, several lords realized that the riffraff, those dirty merchants who were very lowly from a political and social standing point of view, suddenly had more economic power than they did. For the first time in human history, you had a decoupling of political from economic power. The lords who had the political power suddenly realized there was a class of people who had no political power, they were not allowed in the gentlemen's clubs in London, certainly not in Buckingham Palace. They were considered to be dirty merchants. But nevertheless, those dirty merchants suddenly had, had a lot more money, more economic power than the lords. So the lords decided to join them. So what they did was they evicted the peasants from the land. They enclosed the land. They put up fences and replaced them with sheep. And suddenly something magnificent happened. Capitalism. Because... You know, people always toiled, always worked, but work was never a commodity until that day. It only became a commodity when you take the peasants that lived on that land forever and you evict them from the land and they have nowhere to go. Half of them died of starvation and disease. The other half were knocking on doors in villages and so on, which of course became cities. First they became slums, and then they developed into cities like London, Manchester, Birmingham, and so on, Liverpool. And the moment you knock on somebody's door and say, I've got nothing, I will do anything for a loaf of bread, I will anything, you have the first labor market. You have a sale of labor power. 
by somebody who doesn't have anything else to sell for the first time in history. So you, you create labor as a commodity in the labor market, which didn't exist before. People did not, could not quit. If, you, if during feudal times you tried to quit, your head would be removed from your shoulders. Yeah? Um, and significantly, land became a commodity for the first time. Before that, either you inherited land, and you had a lot of it, or you didn't inherit land, and you would never get land. And land was, there was no such thing as a real estate market. You couldn't, there was no um, classified section in the newspaper saying, you know, three acres for sale. That did not exist. It was a shame. It was, it was a great scourge to be selling your inherited land. But suddenly, so land didn't have a value. I mean, it did have great value, but it did not have an exchange value. It did not have a price. But the moment you get rid of the peasants and you replace them by sheep, what you end up with is a situation where you know exactly how many sheep every acre of your land can sustain. You know from the international markets what the value of the wool of each sheep is on average. So you know suddenly you have an internationally determined price for every acre of land. So the land becomes commodified. This development effectively took the economic sphere and created it as autonomous from political, the political sphere. Those who participated in this new economic sphere, lords of the land that turned themselves into capitalists, effectively acquired new, a new form of power that didn't exist before. And is it not interesting that in the 19th century, liberalism, which was all about the right of property owners to have their property rights respected by the king, not to have their wealth, bank accounts, or real estate uh, usurped by the king. That's what the beginning of liberalism is. John Locke, for instance, was all about property rights and the importance of property rights in this magnificent, great transformation of society, this decoupling of political from economic power. Uh, liberalism was the opposite of democracy. The liberals loathed the idea of democracy because democracy was the rule of the many. And the many were the poor, the propertyless. So it went exactly contrary to the idea of preserving the right to property. So even very progressive people for the time, like John Stuart Mill, a very progressive man of the 19th century, was very anti-democratic. He was very skeptical about the idea of a system of government where the many may make decisions on the basis of voting. It is only after a sequence of financial crashes that democracy starts merging with liberalism. And we start talking about liberal democracy. Liberal democracy in the 19th century was a contradiction in terms. It was like saying, you know, a libertarian Marxist, which is what I say about myself. But anyway, <laughs> because contradictions are very good. They make us think. Okay. Second, the second industrial revolution was another great jolt in the history of modernity. Electroma electromagneticism allowed the creation of the first networked firm, like Edison, like uh, the Telegraph. All those new companies, decades, centuries before Google, that were a network, which meant they required a gigantic amount of finance in order to be set up, finance that no rich person had, which meant that the bankers had to find ways of getting together, creating super banks, and conjuring up huge quantities of value out of thin air in order to lend it to the big network companies in the hope that those network companies would then generate the value that would repay the future. And that is when we have another bifurcation, another division of one of the spheres of power. Remember, we had the one sphere, then it became dissected or bisected into the economics and the politics sphere. Now the economic sphere gets divided into the industrial sphere and the financial sphere. And increasingly, we have lived through this process since the 1970s, the financial sphere overwhelms 
and overshadows both the political sphere and the economic sphere. So back to the question, why is the quality of our politicians declining? Because all power rests with finance. Not even within industry anymore. And certainly not in the political sphere. So have you noticed that democratization of the political sphere happened as the political sphere became weaker and weaker and weaker, and all power shifted from the political sphere to the economic sphere and then to the financial sphere. I think women in our midst, especially those who have anything to do with the educational se sector, understand that. Because remember, teaching used to be a male profession and it was very highly uh, thought of. As teaching was feminized, wages started coming down and the status, the social status of a teacher started coming down. It's exactly what happened to the political sphere. The political sphere became, was allowed to be democratized because it didn't matter anymore. Three years ago, and this is the part of the story in adults in the room, when I met uh, Barack Obama nearby, Pennsylvania Avenue, um, I was probably the most, the weakest and the most bankrupt of finance ministers in the history of the world. <laughs> I was. Not personally, but in terms of what country I was representing. When I moved into the, into the finance ministry, I, I gathered uh, the good folk from the Treasury Department, and I asked them the pertinent question. How long before we go bankrupt, before we can't meet our obligations? And one of them, the head, with a trembling voice, he said, it's not too bad, minister. I said, well, define not too bad. He said 11 days to 22. <laughs> so that was my introduction to political life and to the finance ministry. Anyway, so it is perfectly normal that I should feel completely and utterly powerless being, you know, the, um, the left-wing finance minister of a thoroughly bankrupted state. But what was interesting was that what Obama said to me was, look, I understand you 100%. I sympathize. Really? He said, because when I was, you know, when I got elected, I was in exactly the same situation. Wall Street had collapsed and I faced the prospect of having to bail out all of these people. And it was like drinking a glass of political poison. This is, these are the words that he used. And I believe him. So part of my book, Adults in the Room, is about the tragedy of those who are supposed to be powerful. But come to think about it. What's Shakespeare all about? When you watch Macbeth, King Lear, Richard III, what are you watching? You are watching the story of seemingly incredibly powerful people who themselves feel utterly powerless. And it is the tragedy of the powerlessness of the powerful that actually makes the, these, these plays so crucial to our understanding of the human condition. Similarly with ancient Greek drama, Sophocles, take, you know, Oedipus. The whole point about Oedipus is exactly that. The way in which a man who is neither very good nor very bad, just a banal, straight, just middle of the, middle of the road person, is struggling against his own prognostication of problems that are to come. And the more he's struggling to avert them, the more he is bringing them about, and the less powerful he feels. So when I was trying to write this book, even though I, fa I was faced with incredible nastiness and incredible um, misanthropy in the corridors of power, I tried to write that book without having in it any character that was bad or good. This is not a book about goodies and baddies. It is a, is a, is, it is a book about normal people neither very good nor very bad, doing what they consider to be their best under circumstances not of their choosing, caught in an economic and social system that is irrational, exceptionally badly designed, and producing simultaneously crisis and powerlessness for the many, for the demos, taking constantly the demos out of democracy. So the question is, what do we do about it? But I've run out of time. And it's time to have a Q&A.
I've been asked to tell you that you should queue up behind this gentleman and the microphone. And there's another one where? There's only one. That is a camera. <laughs> okay, go. Thank you very much for being here today. Um, my pleasure. I started reading, talking to my daughter about the economy, which I'm finding to be truly meaningful. Um, one thing that I was wondering, one thing that I've been wondering as I've been reading the book is how the book has been received in Greece. Oh, it was a bestseller when it came out. But that was in 2013, and then after my uh, ministry ended, after my resignation, uh, I, the worst of, of all possible outcomes happened from my perspective. You see, all my life I was an academic. And as an academic, two things I wanted to avoid in life, having supporters and having enemies. Because as an academic, you, what you want is people that, ha that, you know, that, that have an open mind and they can be critical and you can have a fantastic conversation and they don't take anything you say for granted, but they are prepared to listen to you and then shoot down what you say. That's, that's academic life. That's, what, that's why I was an academic. And now, after 2015, I live this nightmare where I have people that will believe anything I say before I've said it and people who will reject everything I say before I've said it. It's, 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 this is you know, the end of the democracy. Thank you. Kalispera <laughs> <laughs> um, Stas. The first question, so on the American left, like not the corporate democratic left, but the true left, we yes. are divided between people who believe that white supremacy is sort of the root of all the capitalism and patriarchy, and between folks who think that capitalism is the root of white supremacy and patriarchy and all the other isms. Uh, because everyone believes and loves everything you say before you even say it. Um, yeah. Do you want to weigh in a little? Oh, that's a fantastic point you're making. Look, I think I'll give you a Hegelian answer. To, I will mimic <laughs> my friend Slavoj Zizek. Uh, both positions are correct. <laughs> but I will explain that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not trying to avoid the question. Look, white supremacism is the result of the slave ship. I'm giving you a very simplistic view no. because we don't have much time. If you look at ancient Greek literature, if you look at you know, mythology, um, drama, if you look even at all the way to Shakespeare, Roman literature, medieval literature, uh, with the exception of anti-Semitism, which crept in because of the Catholic Church, it is impossible to even know what the skin color was of important people. Yeah? Did you know that St. Augustine was black? You didn't. He was a Berber eh? from North Africa. Yeah. He was most probably, today he would have been considered, you know, in South Africa he would not have been allowed to vote <laughs> under apartheid. Um, but, it, but you don't find any references because people were colorblind. Yep. When did they start looking, seeing, recognizing color? It was when Slavery became uh, part and parcel of the capitalist accumulation process with the slave ships carrying black slaves from Africa to the Caribbean, to, you know, to the southern states of the United States. And in that slave ship, you had this juxtaposition between very poor, very badly treated white sailors, some of them bonded, uh, not being able to leave the ship. So they were slaves too. But at least they were free slaves. They were a bit like, you know, sort of the, the, the peasants in medieval times. They were not like the slaves of the Romans. And then you had the chained blacks who were constantly trying to rebel during the voyage. Mm -hmm. Half of them were dying anyway. Okay. And the white uh, sailors were really scared of them because if they did unshackle themselves, they would probably kill them. That is the first time in history when... People at the bottom of the social order started recognizing color. And then, of course, the experience of the United States, uh, not mm -hmm. just the United States, but slavery in America, mm -hmm. where you had the, the white Spaniards and the Brits and, and the French on the one hand, and the blacks. So, 
It is true that capitalism begat white supremacism, especially amongst the lower, um, amongst the lumen proletariat, as we leftists would say. But it is also true that capitalism can easily survive without white supremacism. Um, you can have um, a fully functioning capitalist system of exploitation, mm -hmm. of you know, patriarchy, and so on, without any, any racism. And it seems to me that in this country in particular, it is quite indicative that it is easier to get into Harvard today if you're black than, than if you're poor. Let's not forget that. It's quite hard if you're poor and black, yes, but... but yes, yeah. but it's harder yeah. to get in Harvard today if you're poor. Yeah. That's Le right, Bami, of Le course. Bami, one if, more. If you're um, poor and black, it's a double whammy. <laughs> um, one more, I apologize. Um, so, given that it's a flawed system, what you said about the Constitution, the Constitution, Constitution itself sort of being America, a bit of a flawed document, there's, you know... A no, the document is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the system, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the whole system... The, the system is, is... Well, let me get to the question. So on the, the parallel from sort of reactionary to revolutionary, do you think in my lifetime I'll ever see revolutionary in America? I'm 41, in good health, if that helps you. <laughs> well, I will answer from my own perspective. Uh, in 2011, the political party that in the end I got elected with had 4% of the vote. And we had been stuck at 4% for 30 years. And within two years, we went to 40%. Had you asked me in 2012, is this possible? I would say absolutely not. Are you joking? This is, you know, cloud cuckoo land. But it happened. Uh, so anything is possible. And the one thing that gives me enormous both worry and hope is that this system that we live in is simply not sustainable and something will have to break. And the reason why it gives me great worry is because I'm not a determinist. I don't believe that the systemic crisis that we're living in uh, is going to lead necessarily to something better. It can easily lead to something far, far worse, like in the 1930s. Capitalism broke down in 1929, but it was not the good uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, and, and the fine that rose to power, it was the Nazis. But at the same time, there's an opening there for democratic politics. And we, that's why I insist so strongly that we must all become familiar with the way the economy works uh, if we're going to wrestle control back of our lives, of our communities, of our country. Excellent. Uh, thank you again for coming. Two quick questions. One, uh, what do you think of Trump's trade policies? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and from the progressive, I guess, populist perspective, um, to what extent do they hold a, a grain of goodness or truth? Um, and secondly, if you were to revisit the global minotaur again uh, three or four years later, would you come to the same conclusion that the Minotaur is indeed dead, that is the US financial system um, as the global surplus recycling mechanism? I know that's a lot of jargon, but Which it's your read jargon. my book. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Sorry, I didn't Thank you. <laughs> um, well, let's, let, let's start from the, the first question. First, I don't believe that there is such a thing as progressive populism. This is a major contradiction. Populism has nothing to do with being popular. It's got to do with speaking in a language that exploits the fears of the dispossessed in order to harness their anger, speed up, you know, accelerate their anger and reinforce it, and then use it in order to usurp power for yourself and then in the end turn against the many. That can never be progressive. So I'm a comp I, I believe that populism is, is, is only right-wing and regressive, and we have to fight it. And left-wing populism is um, um, a bit like left-wing nationalism. Mm -hmm. I don't see what it means. It means nothing. It, it can't exist. It's just a fraud. On the question of um, trade policy. Well, allow me to give you an example in terms of trade policy of what I would consider a progressive uh, stance and I will be very specific because we don't have much time. Take NAFTA. NAFTA is being 
renegotiated now. Now, when NAFTA was signed, and during the last 10 years or so, I have been a great critic of NAFTA. But so is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Does this mean that we are on the same side? <laughs> Bloody well not. <laughs> and, uh, and allow me to, to make this very specific. Yeah. I would like to see NAFTA renegotiated too. But not on the basis of tariffs that protect uh, American industry. No. I would like a different kind of renegotiation. To say to the Mexican government, do you want your ruling class to be able to shift their profits to Wall Street whenever they want and sell the stuff that Mexican workers produce on the other side of the border? Okay, fine. We will preserve the open border. But you will have to pay a living wage to Mexican workers. So tie up free trade to minimum living standards for the workers in the poorer country. Now, that is a progressive, non-populist policy regarding trade. And now on Trump. Look, do not demonize Trump. <coughs> Trump is a bigot. He's um, a horrible excuse for a human being. <laughs> but don't demonize him. <laughs> Concentrate on what really is behind his policies. When he uh, slapped these uh, tariffs on aluminum imports and um, steel imports and so on, this was simply a pretext for something completely different. He is working with and on behalf the interests of the large conglomerates that have only one incentive. And their incentive is to take away the profits, the future profits in particular, of the large big tech Chinese companies that are the only true competitors to Apple, to uh, Google, to Facebook, because the, Ch the, the Chinese, using their own political uh, excuses, have created serious competitors to Google, to Facebook, and so on. Mm -hmm. And what, effect what Trump is, do is really doing is he's firing the first cannon volleys in a generalized trade war against China, the purpose of which is to open China up to Google, to the big silicon, big, big tech, big pharma, and Wall Street. Now, if he succeeds, he's going to destabilize the United States of America. Because if the United States does to China today that which Ronald Reagan did in 1985 to Japan and to South Korea, you will end up with a crisis in China similar to the crisis of Japan of 1998 and of South Korea, which saw those countries effectively implode. And if China implodes, America's greatest creditor is going to implode. Mm -hmm. And he's going to end up like uh, the sorcerer who has unleashed demonic forces that he can no longer control. So he must be stopped, not because he's a madman, but because he is acting on behalf of very particular interests in this country, which, as always, are pushing uh, developments in, in a direction which is in their narrow corporate interest, but against the longer-term interest of the United States and the rest of the world. That was meant to be a short answer, sorry. <laughs> Hi. Uh, as an academic, I have to say that was a very pre-Freudian understanding of academia um, that you, you described uh, a little bit before about... Pre-Freudian? Yes. Okay. No friends or enemies. or Anyway, I wish it were that way. I'm just saying that it's a, a little bit of a striking description. As a Greek, uh, I share the trauma uh, that I think every Greek lived in that period, and, uh, which is why I haven't read your book yet. It's at home, but I haven't read it precisely because I'm... Uh, a little bit traumatized. exactly yes we were all traumatized so i'm asking you the favor of um getting me to the part of the adults in the room book um where you reflect about what you personally uh could have done differently either in what you negotiated or how you negotiated it that you think could have made a difference in the outcome and my just as a background my question comes from actually a very sympathetic politically point of view of someone who, watching what was going on in January 2015 already, felt like this is a government that doesn't have a mandate for taking Greece out of the euro, therefore you have to know that your fallback position is very um, iffy. 
So anyway, anything you have to say on that uh, point? Okay, you raised a number of issues. Let me start from a pre-Freudian point. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, of course, acad academia is not some kind of oasis of um, you know, pure thought and good feelings, but compared to every other realm of social life I know, there is still a possibility, and I experienced it, I had it, of sitting opposite people that disagreed with you and who tried to unpick your logical arguments. Maybe they were also motivated by Freudian and you know, Jungian, uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, because um, they don't like your motorcycle. Pardon? Because they don't like your motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, they could. But they still would have to, to phrase their objections yeah. to what you're doing on the basis of a logical critique of your assumptions, of your methods, of your theoretical construction. And that was so beautiful. Whereas when I walked into the Eurogroup, mm -hmm. uh, not to the Eurogroup, into Wolfgang Schäuble's room, office mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in Berlin, and I, 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 you know, I tried to explain to him the logic behind my proposals. And he just didn't want to hear. And he said, but this is, goes against the rules. I said, yes, but the rules have already been violated because those rules cannot work. He said, yes, but they are the rules. I said, yes, but you are violating the rules yourself. He said, yes, but they are the rules. <laughs> uh, I said, hang on, Volker. Is there any way we can make those rules work? He said, no. I said, so what are we going to do? He said, respect them. So, yeah, compare and contrast mm -hmm. with academia, right? You would never have that kind of exchange. Or when, you know, Christine Lagarde, this is in the beginning of the book. Uh, after the first time we met, we had the, the formal discussions with our aides, boring. Just going through the motions. And then the interesting conversation, I presented my proposals for debt restructure that I'm going to go back to, to, to answer the second part of the question. And, you know, we had the, the usual sparring game between my team and her team. And at, at the end, the two of us walked out on our own and went for a long walk without aids, and that's when you really have the, the proper conversation. And she turned around and completely gobsmacked me by saying, Yanis, of course you are right. This, what we're trying to impose upon you cannot work. I thought, did I hear that? <laughs> and then she hastened to add, but you've got to understand, we have invested so much political capital in this that you've got to accept it because your credibility depends on accepting this program that doesn't work. Huh? So that you don't get in academia. That was the point I was making. Huh? Nobody comes to you and says, look, your, your, your theorem is correct, but look, we have invested so much money and effort into not accepting it that we, nobody will tell you. Maybe they do it, but they will never actually tell you this. Right. Okay, let's go back to the other thing. What did we have a mandate for? I think our mandate was very clear, and I felt that this supported what I was doing one trillion percent. We didn't have a mandate to get Greece out of the Euro. I never wanted to get the Greece, to our country out of the Euro. Uh, we never campaigned, I never campaigned, with a policy of getting Greece out of the Euro because I didn't believe in it. Uh -huh. Wait, wait, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, there were others in my party, like Lafazanis, like us, who believed in that, and that was, you know, but they lost the argument mm -hmm. within the party. And that was not our electoral campaign. Mm -hmm. Our electoral campaign was based on the following very simple proposition. We do not want to get out of the euro because getting out of the euro will be very costly. But if the powers that be, the creditors, the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, the European Union, if they insisted that we should sign on the dotted line of yet another loan agreement that was unsustainable, effectively keeping us in a debtor's prison in which Greece will be, become a desert because the young all the young people leave as they are leaving. We are not going to sign that because in the end, Grexit is preferable to permanent debt bondage within the euro. That was my line explicitly. This was the party line explicitly. This, and we got a mandate for this. And the slogan was, not everything for the euro. It was not, let's get out of the euro, but we are not going to sacrifice everything for the euro. That was in big posters. And you know, a week before the election, I was on Antenna, one of the shitty television channels, excuse my French, 
and I was very explicit. And, and of course, the opposition, the opposition, the government then, uh, made a very big deal out of that statement of mine. I said that if we are not prepared to put the phone down on Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, the moment he threatens us with bank closures if we do not sign on the dotted line, we have no reason to be elected. How, how, you know, you can't put it more succinctly than that. The tragedy was that uh, the team that we were we, we sort of weaved together, Alex Tsipras and two or three other people, that had convinced me that that was our line and we would stick to it to the bitter end, okay. did not stick to it. Huh? And what happened in, on the 5th of July 2015? We had a referendum. And the referendum was, uh, remember what the Troika said, the creditor said, take it or leave it. In other words, sign on to your permanent debt bondage. And they were explicit. If you don't, we'll throw you out of the euro. It was explicit. And we took it to the people. Television channels were blasting into every living room the great warning that Armageddon is coming if you vote against the Troika. Every single television channel. Every, I mean, it, it was un unbelievable. The Soviet Union inverted. Imagine the Soviet Union's press and television against the government. That's why I'm saying inverted. There were closed banks. The banks were closed. We never said when they will open again. And the people of Greece gave us 62% mandate. We had the mandate. The, not, in, not in January, necessarily. Oh, so yeah, we did. We so did. We, what were we elected to do? Especially since you said that you, especially because of the discussion you mentioned about how many days we have. If that discussion happened in January, what I don't understand, maybe it's in the book, is why, what happened between February and June? Like, why did we have to That's wait? That's the book. Okay, I'll go read it. I was just asking for a shortcut. But, so you, but be warned. Uh -huh. It's tough reading. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll, I, want I still have nightmares over every moment that went by. Before we go to the next question, I just want to say we have time for two more questions. Yes, I read your book. I loved your book, and it was a heartbreaking this book. This one or the, the, the heartbreak one? Yeah, I read the heart. Yes, the heartbreak of, of uh, adults in the room. When Sarita won, our hearts soared, some of us. Mine and too. we thought Podemos was next, and there would be a transformation in Europe, instead of this fascism we're seeing in Europe arising yep. today. Um, in, on April 26, Matt O'Brien wrote in the um, Washington Post, Greek's economic crisis is over only if you don't live there. He said that in, That's correct. you may, Greece may be able to get where it was in 2007, in 10 years. Why? Why did the Sarita government go? Why was it so important for you to stay in the euro? The thesis of this article is that you, that 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 national autonomy gave up an aspect of national autonomy for well, staying let, in the let, euro. Let, let, so, let, let, let me answer your question by telling you, you're, 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 by informing you that you're talking to somebody who has a formal treason charge laid against him in the Greek Parliament, as we speak, right. for having conspired to get Greece out of the euro. Now, even though it wasn't my policy to get Greece out of, Euro, of the euro, I agree with you entirely, I was absolutely committed to doing so if the alternative was what we have now. And that was my position before the election, during my tenure, and to this day. So the question is, why did Tsipras? Yes. My oh, well, Tsipras. you see, this is a question I will take to my grave. If you ask my wife, he will, she will tell you. <laughs> she has a theory, but I refuse to share it simply because, you know why? Because I'm not in the business of trying to psychoanalyze people. I really don't give a damn why he betrayed us and why he did what he did. I don't care. I really don't care. What matters is action, what you do, not the reasons that you tell yourself are important for doing them. Uh, but also, I'm, I was never one of those people, especially economists, who underestimated the cost of a Grexit. Don't underestimate. We would have lost another 10% of GDP. But within 18 months, we would have recovered it. And now we would be free and we would be growing um, exponentially. Like Argentina. Yeah? So I did not have the moral right to suggest a Grexit because, you know, 
it's like saying that a segment of the population is going to be thrown off a cliff so that the rest can survive. I don't have the moral right to do it. Uh, you know, I'm not a utilitarian. I don't believe that you can put on the scales the misery of some with the improvement. But at the same time, I had a mandate not to sign on another loan agreement, not to take another credit card out. Yeah? And if they wanted to chuck us out because I was not signing on another loan agreement, let them chuck us out. And thank you for your bottom line for standing with the workers. Thank you. We have time for this one last question. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, two months ago, I only had a hazy idea who you were. I was going on a trip to so Greece. So what happened two months ago? I was going on a trip to Greece, and a friend gave me your book, okay. uh, Dolce in the Room, which I read and loved so much, I wrote a 2,000-word analysis, sent it to my friends. But I'm going to ask you a question contra contradictory to it, to your thesis Please of do. your book. But I'll preface it by saying that what astounded me when I went to Greece was carrying this book with your picture on it, Everywhere I went, I got a response. What, waiters, taxi cab people, uh, people in the hotels. Taxi people, drivers like me. Did you get The majority liked you, yes. but definitely not all. Of course. <laughs> it's what I was telling you before, the polarization. I'll throw in villagers and people in Kaminia, the poor part of Athens, yeah. too. But uh, so. So what's the question? Yeah, the, what the, is difficult the question one. is, Come on, along with their liking you, there was a huge expectation that things were a little bit better, not a lot better, and that in August, when all the direct supervision is going to go away, things might get better still, and they were pulling out of it. And there's even stuff in the press about debt relief, yeah. which is what was one of your big issues. Yeah. So it seems like it's all coming by playing the game, and you're saying no. 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 So tell us why I not. wish you that was true. It's all subterfuge. It's it's the injury. Sorry, it's the insult that, that follows the injury. Uh, look, Europe, official Europe, is absolutely fantastic at creating the neologisms, the new words, the new phrases of uh, success in order to cover up for the complete failure. We are fantastic at that in Europe. And they decide at some point, we are now going to declare the end of the Greek crisis. Not by solving it, but by simply saying, no, finished, gone. Let me tell you what, the, I mean, uh, uh, allow me to explain for those of you who don't know and you have no reason to know what's going on in terms of the shenanigans. Uh, the powers that be in Europe and the Greek government are celebrating that the Greek bailout, the loan agreement, is coming to an end in August this year, this next August. So they say, ah, it's all over, over, finished. You see, you know, we did what the, the creditor said, and, you know, Varoufakis was, uh, um, uh, was too extreme, too radical. We didn't need to clash with them. Everything's going to be okay now. We had a difficult two years. We did things we didn't want to do, but everything's going to be all right. Now, what's the reality? The reality is that the only thing that ends in August is the loans that are coming to Greece. When I left... 86 billion, something like 100 billion dollars, was lent, the third package. This, not one of those euros went to Greece, not one. All that was happening was the creditors were taking money out of one pocket and give, giving it to the other pocket, pretending that Greece was paying them, on condition of cutting wages, cutting pensions, um, effectively ending all protection for workers. Now we have less protection for workers than Bangladesh does, and I mean that. Uh, astonishing things, you know, you have precarious workers, people that, like Uber workers, who now have to pay, to pay next year's tax as estimated by the tax office this year. Can you, can, can you fathom that? This is what you do to a country if you want to crush it. So all this is happening. Uh, you want some numbers? Okay. Total income is 175. That, forget the zeros because they, they confuse you. Total income in Greece is 175. It used to be 250. So we have a great depression. 175. Total debt, 320. The state owes to citizens 10 and cannot pay them. The citizens owe to the state 130. 175 is the total income. And citizens owe 110 to the banks, which owe 85 to the state. It is a basket case. Yeah? So all that has happened is that the 86 billion that the Troika has given itself to pretend to prepay itself is now running out. 
they put 30 aside. But from that 30, they will have to pay themselves 100 huh, by 2029. Uh, and of course, it's not enough. So the rest they will have to take out a pound of flesh out of a shrinking, destroyed economy, private sector primarily. And then between 2020 and 2060, they are going to have to extract another 220. So the debt bondage is getting deeper. The, uh, the austerity measures are going to continue. 1st January 2019, they have already legislated now that on the 1st of January 2019, after supposedly the exit from the bailout, they are going to reduce pensions again. Uh, pensions have already come down 49%, 49%, uh, and they're going to reduce them again, and at the same time, introduce the, I th I th this is the only country in the world where what I'm going to tell you is going to be the case. Workers are going to be paying income tax from the first dollar. From the first dollar, no tax-free threshold. The, there's no country in the world where that happens, none. None. It's going to happen in Greece, 1st of January. So when I hear that in August we're going to get out, finally, debt relief. What I was arguing for was a debt restructure. And everybody was talking about debt restructure, but, you know, we will not do it yet, and so on and so forth. By the way, all the proposals for a debt restructure that I put forward here in uh, the IMF and so on, uh, were accepted and adopted for Ukraine. Mm. <laughs> Close the, the brackets. Uh, now they are talking about something else. They are talking about debt relief. Not the same. Do you know what it means? It means that they realize that the Greek government in the next 10 years cannot be repaying all the money that they said that they would be repaying. So what they're going to do is they're going to reduce the repayments for the next 10 years, but not cut it from the debt, add it on top of the debt with interest until 2060. And they will continue to allow this debt relief as long as the government introduces new austerity measures. In other words, the opposite is happening. After August, we are getting deeper into debt bondage with a whole system which is celebrating the end of debt bondage. Cheers. Okay. <laughs> Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.